I don't know where where you want to start. You you probably have a pattern for this. So I was born. Uh, no, I don't. Feel free to start however you want. We can circle back to things, whatever. It's not a big deal. So go ahead and start with the the story about you teaching in Pakistan for six weeks. Six weeks, you said? Yeah, it, it was 1986, I think. And I got a letter uh, out of the blue from someone in the State Department. They run, I, I, I'm not sure what the program is called, if it's still around. I think it was called Arts America or something like that. I mean, this, the State Department and the Foreign Service is, is basically charged with making sure everybody likes us. And to that end, they ran a program of sending cultural issues, cultural things around the world. They have, as you probably know, American centers where there's a, an embassy in the, in the capital. But most of the countries that are larger or, or, I guess, economically better off will have consulates in the in the other cities a lot of countries like Pakistan for example they put their capital in a place that nobody really wanted to go to that wasn't developed it's sort of like us using Washington DC because that it would end a fight between Boston and New York City so our our consulates are usually in the place in the population centers and they they usually have a program they'll have a library of books in English and they'll they'll have American movies that they show for for locals and the State Department would also import things like, for example, there was a big exhibition of Ansel Adams photographs that went around the world many times. And, and uh, one, one of my friends in, in Boston was involved in the matting and framing and crating of it because they worked doing that for Polaroid, for example. And they showed me the instruction manual. And it was something like 150 pages. It was, it was an awful lot of, of paper about how to open the crate and how to take the packing material off and what to you know how to touch the the images and how to put them on the wall it was very very thorough and while i was sponsored by the state department i'll tell you a little more about how it started uh, again but i met a uh, an, an architect a very well known theoretical architect who was being sent around to meet with architects in in various places they sponsored when I was in Pakistan. There was a lawyer who specialized in constitutional issues who was talking to various lawyers about how great the constitution is. So they would send jazz groups and art exhibits around the world just to expand our influence. And someone at a cocktail party, the, the diplomatic corps is mixing it up with the, with the locals as much as they can. It's their job. And someone at a cocktail party mentioned that the art school in Lahore was trying to figure out how to expand or professionalize its photography department. And so they cast a wide net. They sent out letters to a bunch of people that I don't know how they got names, but I got a letter and it said, would you be interested in going to teach photography in Pakistan for six weeks? And they asked me for a proposal, I guess. This is a long time ago, so I don't remember very well, but but I, I, I must have said the right things because they sent me over there. It was uh, 36 hours door to door. It was uh, Boston. I was living in Boston at the time. It was Boston to London to Kuwait to Dubai to Karachi to Lahore, w which was just incredibly painful. And Dubai, one of the places I you you lived there, so you, you'll appreciate this. Was one of the places I thought it'll be interesting, if nothing else, just to see the airport. But they wouldn't let me off the plane, so I'd already been traveling for more than 24 hours, and I had I was the only person on the plane who was continuing and. I sat there on the plane for an hour, hour and a half while they the crew came in and scrubbed everything and vacuumed and 
and made a lot of noise, and I was just miserable in, in the seat. And actually, it was, it was kind of interesting. Remember, this is the 80s. The crew was got on, and, and then the passengers who, who were going on to Pakistan started to get on. One of the crew, a, a flight attendant, came by and was, was chatting with me and said, they're all workers who leave their families in Pakistan and come here to work in the oil fields and et cetera, to bring home money. And she said, you watch, every one of them is going to get on with a boombox because there's a duty-free shop in the airport. And sure enough, every one of these, they were all, all male and everyone got on with one of these gigantic, it was the, the 80s, so nobody had earbuds then. So everybody got on with this giant boombox over their shoulder, except for one guy. And I watched and everybody's starting to settle in. And then on the, on the intercom, in the in the cabin i hear and that one guy gets up and gets off the plane and comes back with his boombox <laughs> i wonder what that was <laughs> it was you you forgot your your luggage sir <laughs> you left it you left it in the terminal well i mean that kind of thing still exists i mean in the uae there are these like international almost almost like treaties agreements with foreign governments like Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, um, and a couple other countries that basically like they bring in laborers and they bring in like housemaids and things like this at what are very high wages in their home country, but what are very low wages in the UAE. And they, they do their work and then and then they go home and with a lot of money in their pockets. And some bling in their pockets to bring home for, for the kiddies, hence all the all the boom boxes. Yeah, at the at the duty free. It was endlessly fascinating for me because I I got to see a country I had never been to, a culture I didn't know, and also our own foreign service, the State Department, is invisible to Americans abroad. If you're a tourist, they don't want to see you. The only reason you would encounter our foreign service is if you lose your passport or get arrested. Or get arrested, yes. And they don't want to see you in those circumstances particularly. It's not you know, not fun for them. So their whole business is promoting and being the United States abroad. And I lived with in the, in the house of the public affairs officer, who was the one who would meet every morning with, with the press and answer their questions and, and give the American official line to the press. And he had been in the Foreign Service. His previous posting was in Cameroon. And, and uh, they're all kind of competing to get to more civilized and, and safe countries. So they all want to end up in England or Germany or France. He would get up every morning, have some cereal and milk, and put on his, his tweed jacket and his slacks and go to, to work being American. And I met the Fulbright scholars are all sponsored by the State Department also. And I met a, a, a family of Fulbright people. The, the guy was an academic from California who was studying Sufism. And there no, there, there's no restrictions on the, or few restrictions on the, the Fulbright people. So they got native. And I went to their house and they were sitting on the floor eating local food and, and they were wearing the local clothing. Because if you live there for a while, you realize that the clothing they wear makes sense for their culture, make their environment, their food makes sense. And the Americans that I was hanging around with, the, the diplomatic corps, they're not allowed to go native. And they, their, their postings only last for three years so that they're, they're, they're not tempted to adapt that way. So after three years, they go to another country or they go back to Washington, D.C. For, to, to 
reconnect with being American for three years, then they're sent somewhere else. So I was just as fascinated by the, the diplomatic corps as I was by the local culture. And, and the guessing game everybody has is which ones are spooks. You can never tell. <laughs> All of them. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and everybody, I think, worked for somebody else. Well, you, you're you not allowed to know, and it's a wonderful guessing game, but it remains a guessing game. I knew lots of people that worked at the CIA, so yeah. I actually, one day, I, I when I was in, I was a roadie, and, and we went and set up a festival event thing at the CIA building. We had to go through full CIA background checks and all this kind of stuff. It was thoroughly uh, frightening, quite honestly, because a number of the people that I worked with, I mean, we were all, you know, we're roadies, we're drug addicts, we're, you know, whatever, crazy people. And uh, a number of the people that were employed with us were not allowed on. And they didn't tell them why. They just said, um, we are not giving you a pass. <laughs> and they just, they just turned them away. And that's all. Didn't cause a stink. Didn't even tell them what was wrong. They just said, we're not giving you a pass to come in. And that's it. I suspect that maybe maybe I was checked out before they sent me to Pakistan as well. Oh, yeah. I was thoroughly vetted uh, when I went to the United Arab Emirates as well. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm surprised I passed. Um, well, I, I have a history. I, I know for a fact I was under investigation by the Drug Enforcement Agency for like a year. They were doing like video surveillance on me, like the, the whole thing. So like... I'm fully aware that there's a horrible dossier of me somewhere, but they didn't seem to find that. So, Chalk it up to good fortune. Yeah, I think it was a, because uh, it was longer than seven years since the, between the DEA and when I applied to go to the job. So I think the, the sort of statute limitation sort of passed, I hope. I don't know, <laughs> I guess. It might be part of another story, but I had a secret security clearance in my youth. So that might have made it a little easier for them to let me go abroad. You must tell more. Secret security clearance. That's amazing. It's part of how I became a photographer, which I, I sort of figure if you were going to ask me any questions, it would be, how did you become a photographer? It's a little tangled story, but I'll kind of start at the beginning. Well, okay. If you want me to do that, I generally actually start a little earlier than that. I'm always, I'm actually interested in how photographers got created. So like, were your parents creative? So like, what did they do for a living? So like, what led you into even being creative and sort of down in your case, photography? So like, you know, early on, so like, you know, cause some creative people have creative parents. So it's kind of obvious. Some people have not creative parents. And so it's sort of like, how did that sort of happen kind of thing? So starting that way and then into the actuals would be great. It does figure in. My mother was the creative one in the family. She was a musician, not professionally, but she played the piano very well. And my sister and I were encouraged to engage in, in music. And so I took piano lessons for a while. And then I played trombone in high school and in the high school band. And I made all state band and then started playing the guitar and drums and ended up in a, in a rock and roll band in high school. And you know, that, that was sort of my creative release. But my father was an engineer and worked in, in the aerospace industry. And I tested well in science and math when I was in high school. And, and I was a child of the 50s. So it, it was obvious that I was going to go become an engineer and help the United States win the space race. It was kind of Sputnik madness. And so I left 
high school thinking I was going to be an engineer. I went to college at, at MIT in, in Massachusetts is what, what got me out of Arizona where I was living and in, onto the East Coast. And about my junior year, I did a co-op semester, which I guess today would be called an internship, where I spent a semester in Northern California working for Lockheed Missiles and Space Company in Sunnyvale, south of San Francisco in, in what we now think of as Silicon Valley. And so I would get up every morning, I'd go to this place that had 20,000 employees and, and a parking lot for 12,000 cars. And people wore badges. There, were, there was a different color badge if you were a salaried employee or if you were hourly. So there was a kind of uh, status separation immediately, a class system. And I wasn't doing anything very interesting. There was only one person that I ever thought was particularly interesting at the place who I only ever saw. At lunch, I would walk from one big building to another big building to get to the cafeteria. And I would see out in the far reaches of this giant parking lot, some guy taking his lunch hour out in the middle of the parking lot playing the bagpipes. And I thought, well, maybe there's a chance for individuality here anyway. But what I began to realize was that I was uh, surrounded by people who were, this is during the Vietnam War, I was surrounded by people who were building bombs and missiles for the war effort, and I kind of didn't like it. And I was spending my weekends in San Francisco hanging around with people on in Haight-Ashbury and, and going to hear the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and in the evenings. So it was a little bit of a conundrum for me. And one of the things I did while I was there was... Uh, Going back a step, my parents had gone to Europe for the for the first time, and came back with a a present for me, which was a little Roly thirty five camera. It was a very compact thirty five millimeter film camera, and and I remembered my engineer dad and I would do things. You know, one one time we would take apart the lawnmower, or you know, one one time we we set up a dark room in a bathroom and we developed film, and those things would last a few weeks, and then we'd go on to something else. And I remembered that when I was 12, that I, I could develop film, but I didn't remember how. So I thought I would take a class. And I signed up at something called the Mid-Peninsula Free University. And it had this Xerox catalog that included classes like mind unfucking. But there was also a beginning photography class. So I went to the first meeting of this class, and it was it was up in the, in the hills in a log cabin. And I, I remember... Most people were wearing boots and jeans and flannel shirts, uh, and the, the teacher was also in boots and jeans and a flannel shirt with a beard, and, and he was holding this little yellow and black book in his lap, talking about how all of the knowledge about photography came from this book, and this man was the god of photography who wrote this book, and, and that we were going to study that book and learn about photography. And he mentioned the name of the author was Minor White, and that he taught in this East Coast Engineering College. And I thought, well, geez, I'm a student at that college. Why don't I just go back to school and let Minor White teach me how to develop film? So I kept all of my film. I was taking pictures of my friends and, uh, and our non-warlike activities. And when the, when the time at Lockheed was over, I went back and signed up for a, a photo class at, at MIT and learned how to develop the, you know, the little bag full of film and was uh, essentially kind of overwhelmed by the difference between what happened at the at the photo lab and and what happened across the street in the in the engineering classes. So that's kind of how I got started in in photo. 
did you take that class with Minor White? Actually, officially, my first photography teacher was Jonathan Green. Jonathan had been working for Ezra Stoller, who is a very well-known East Coast architectural photographer who kind of did all of the famous architectural photographs on the East Coast. And Jonathan, I don't know how Minor found him, but Jonathan was a, a, a very literate guy and was interested in more, more about photography than just doing it for a living. I think I was a junior in college. And when I went to sign up for the beginning photo class, there was a wait list of eight semesters because it was very popular. Minor had just kind of taken over and people wanted the class. And I thought, well, this isn't going to work. I can't wait four years. And I, I met Jonathan and he said, well, I'm, I'm teaching this section of beginning photography for architects. You're an architecture major, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, of course. So, so I ended up in the, a class. We, we learned how to photograph a, an architectural model and we learned how to spray paint clouds on the backdrop. And basically I got through the beginning class and then there was a much smaller lineup for people to take the the classes after that with minor. So, so my second and third and fourth class, were, those were all with, with minor. That's amazing. I wish some of my professors were like that well-esteemed. <laughs> I got incredibly lucky. And, and I was also, I mean, part of it is I'm old. And, and, and back then there were relatively few opportunities. That, I mean, minor used to say that in the 50s, photographers used to clump together for warmth because there were just not very many people who were making photography as an art and being very serious about it. You could, you know, when, when, when I started, you could count them on the fingers and, and toes totally. And then, and then it began uh, in the early seventies, it really exploded, but I was able to take classes with minor. He was still teaching. And then uh, across the street, Doc Edgerton was teaching classes. I took a class called photographic science, which was in fact, photographic science, but Doc Edgerton made all the strobe photographs of uh, bullets going through playing cards and breaking balloons, and uh, he, he was extremely well known for that in the photo world. But but Doc was a professor of electrical engineering, and he thought that the photographs he was making were entirely for the benefit of people who want to see some science in in an easy way to to grasp. So he didn't think he was an artist. He was using photography for, for its basic functions. So I took a photographic science class, and it's a good thing. I mean, I, you couldn't be a student at MIT without taking too much math and too much science. So I could deal with the, the calculus and, the, and physics that, that was in that class, whereas Minor was you know, talking about poetry and offering classes where people would, in critiques, you would, instead of talking about a photograph, you would respond by making a noise or a sound to a photograph, or you would make a motion or a gesture to a photograph. So the two of them couldn't have been further apart. And I got a, you know, I got a start in with a foot in both camps, and, and I was very fortunate. Well, that sounds like a great foundation to allow for your own endeavors to sort of arise from whatever influence you got. I don't like it when uh, school has like all the professors are of one oeuvre and like so you just don't get exposed to enough different styles and enough different things. So like that sounds amazing. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, doubly fortunate because I went to graduate school at Rhode Island School of Design at right at the last of Harry Callahan and Aaron Siskind teaching there. They both, just after my group finished, 
they both got the benefit of the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson buying their archives. So they got a lump of money and Light Gallery put together an investment group and bought a, a big bunch of their photographs. So suddenly they had income that they could depend on for the next five or 10 years. And both of them said, I'm out of here. And just like virtually everyone else decided that maybe uh, they, they wanted to be artists the way that, that they had always thought they, they wanted to be. Well, that's a fascinating thing because like uh, on your website and, and in bios I've read about you numerous times, you, you continually use the phrase that says you're an exhibiting artist who uses photography. I love that. I think I stole that from you years ago because I use something very similar because there there's this debate on the term sort of like photographers often aren't artists and artists often aren't photographers and the whole mix up of like the misunderstandings between that because all too many times like people be like hey what do you do and I would say I'm a photographer and they'd be like oh I'm getting married soon and I'm like no I am not a fucking wedding photographer I'm a photographer who's an artist but and so like it's really hard and 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 trying to create that delineation for the general public to understand is something I, I wish more people would work on, I guess. Fortunately, I presume fortunately, I am somewhat insulated from that because I'm an academic. I, I, I exist in a, an, an academic program. I'm teaching photography in an art program. We're the photo program at the University of New Mexico, where I teach, has always been highly ranked. It's, it's well known as, as a good program for graduate students in photography. And, and, and as a result of that, we, we get people coming from all over to study photography here. And many of them, I correct them every time, they say in the photography department, and I have to stop them and say, we're not a photography department, we're an art department, we're a photography area. And my colleagues are painters and art historians and printmakers. So photography is very well integrated in my world into the rest of the arts. And, and we don't hear that quite as often. Every once in a while, I'll get a, an email from someone out in the, in the public that thinks that I can recommend a student to shoot a wedding. I don't usually give them a lengthy answer because I would be a little bit abusive about how they're trying to be cheap about it and, and get very inexpensive help. And you can't do a wedding over again if the pictures don't come out and you really need to hire a professional who's done it before. And and most weddings that I've been to, if they've got a little string quartet playing in the corner and a photographer taking pictures, the people in the string quartet started their instruments when they were four years old. And the photographer probably started when they were in high school or college. So there's there's a disconnect, I think, in terms of what people think of the medium. This is not, you know, my phraseology at all. Lots of people use the same analogy, but but a camera is is the equivalent of a pencil. You can use a pencil to write a shopping list or an angry letter or the great American novel. And the camera is essentially the same kind of tool. You can use it for so many different ends that you shouldn't confuse all of them with the same user. Yeah, these days I actually use it as a shopping list because I'll photograph things so that I don't have to write them down or remember what I have to buy. I'm like, I'm out of this thing and I'll take a picture of that thing. Yes, that's that's been interesting for me. I'm 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 old school, so I started with film, and I never would have imagined because it's really a, a a kind of a pleasure, but it's also a pain in the ass to have to develop the film and then go in a darkroom and make a print. And you would never think of using it for some so humble a, a 
a purpose as taking a picture of your shopping list because you'd spend hours rendering it so you can walk into the supermarket with a print. So now people use their phones for so many magical and inventive ways of incorporating pictures into their lives, which is sort of why there are billions and billions of photographs floating around now. It's a, it's daunting. It is. Yeah. But I want to get to something like, okay, I want to say to me, you're like a photography God guru, you know, you're, you're the, the master. Like I literally, my first introduction to photography was from your books. So I learned on your books. I have used your books in my curriculum for my university teaching for the past 15, 20 years. Like to me, I'm just like, oh my God, it's Jim Stone. Like you're the masterful. But what I want to know is like, was that a good idea or a bad idea? Because like I sat down at one point, I was thinking, I'm like, okay, I love your books and I love a lot of the other books that are instructional out there. And I think they're really great, but there's, there are some gaps in there that I kind of wish there were some other instructional sort of criteria for. And I thought about producing a book and then I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I produce a book, then I become the bearer of the lightning rod of like, if I say anything wrong or do anything wrong, or if I do anything differently in my own practice, suddenly I'm like not following my own rules. And I feel like that the it's a it's sort of a mixed blessing being the guy who wrote like the Bible for how to learn photography. It is a bit of a burden. It's not quite as extreme as you make it out to be. And and I'll I'll tell you I guess both sides of that. The good side that should make you a little less worried about deciding to be my competition is that it's not going to happen now. But yeah, the the books that that I've done, the instructional books that I've done. Other than the the first couple of them, actually the first one I think is was 1979 or something like that, and and it it was daunting, it, it, scary to me that that a few years ago they reprinted it, and on the cover it says 35th anniversary edition, and I thought I don't I don't want to know that that's a, that's that's not it's a reminder of something that I'm not all that happy with, but the others have all gone through several editions, ones in its. 10th edition now and one's in its 12th edition. And and every time there's a revision, the book gets sent out to people who use it to teach. They select a, a half dozen or so people who have adopted the book for their classes. And they send out the ninth edition and say, we're going to do a 10th edition and ask a bunch of questions about what's good and what's not good and what does it cover and what does it not cover. So there's a continual response circle that is very, very helpful in terms of saying, what does it need and, and what, what's being left out that's, that's a problem? Or is there anything that, that anybody can find that, that doesn't sit well particularly? I remember the edition when you first included digital. <laughs> like, I remember that transition from like the all film and then the next one suddenly had like, I think like three chapters on digital. And I was just like, who cares about this digital crap? <laughs> That was a very difficult transition to get past because I'm not the only one who saw it coming, but I had to be able to integrate it in a way that would make sense to people who were out there in the, in the world teaching photography, people in mostly higher education who are offering photo classes. And still, even now, it's been a long time since, since darkroom photography became essentially useless as a professional tool, or at least as a as a mainstream medium. 
there are an awful lot of people doing it. The students are incredibly enthusiastic about it. And a huge number of colleges are still teaching their beginning class in the darkroom. And I wrestled with it for a very long time about, is it better to start out with digital or to start out with darkroom? And as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's moot. You, as, as long as you learn the fundamentals of the medium and, and treat it as a tool, like we were talking about, as a tool for some kind of expression, I don't myself care. And we teach both sides of it in, in our program. But I did have to do something that served the academic community, that served the people who are teaching. And so one of the books sort of became half and half. That's the big book that that has everything for everybody. And it's got view camera and non-silver and digital and traditional darkroom. And it's just a big, fat, expensive book. But the smaller versions of it that are called the a short course in photography, if I can put in a plug here, I divided it so that there is also a short course in digital photography. So there's a darkroom version and a digital version for people who are teaching a one semester class in one or the other. I've owned those books as well, yes. Okay, well, and, and anyway, if you are a professor, if you're teaching a class and, and you've stuck it out this long to listen to me put in a plug, you can get copies of those books, desk copies from the publisher. It's uh, Pearson Education. A anyway, the, the good side of that, the, the problem is that it can't do everything. In, in my own classes, I, I realize that there are three parts to what someone is going to get out of the class or, or retain. And one of them is what you're saying in the class, what you tell them. And another part of that is what they do. And another part of that is what they read. So I would give assignments, say, read this part of the book. Here's what you need to try. And so I would talk about the, the particular issue and not present it in the same way that I put it in the book. And, and other professors even more distant from me in terms of what they talk about in a classroom. So the book is an adjunct to classroom. It can't be complete. It can't communicate what's great about photography because it's, it's, it's obviously limited. But having said that, one of the things that I am very aware of is that what I put in the book, to a large extent, influences what people think about the medium. And I'm extremely careful about that and, and have tried to expand the representative examples. Some of the examples come from the professions. Sometimes I'll put in a, a wedding photograph or a, a portrait photograph by or a, a editorial photograph or, or a reportage, a, a photojournalist's work. And sometimes it's work by, and, and it's, it's my particular interest. Uh, I, I have a lot of work in it that are by self-conscious artists or by people who were photojournalists who were making such great photographs that they've been incorporated into what we think the art of photography is. That's the, the blending of the borders is one of the more interesting parts about it. So I'm very careful about the images that, that I include and who makes them and when they were made, because it's a very important kind of first exposure by a lot of people to what serious photography is all about. And so the the quality of those examples is extremely important. Well, that was one of my youthful goals. Like I, I remember, you know, again, like I read your book backwards and forwards for decades and because, you know, not only learning the photography medium myself, but then having to teach it. So I had to like almost memorize it in many ways. But I like, as the little egotistical artist that I was, I was always like, oh my God, it would be so magnificent if I could get one of my pieces as an example in Jim Stone's book. 
which I, I apologize, by the way. I keep calling it Jim Stone's books. Barbara London, Jim Stone, and now John Upton also. Yes, I, I, I can tell you uh, a little bit about the genesis of that. John Upton, who the late John Upton, he passed away this, this last year. I'm, I'm sorry. John and Barbara started the big book. The first edition was Upton and Upton because they were married. It was Barbara, John and Barbara Upton. John was also a, a teacher at uh, Orange Coast College in California. And eventually John kind of left it in, in Barbara's lap to do the work. He had a teaching job and, and a lot of other interests. And Barbara brought me in as, as a co-author. And so she and I were co-authors of the Short Coast books. John had nothing to do with that. Now maybe 10, 15 years ago, essentially Barbara retired. She is in her 80s now. And there were a couple of editions where Barbara's the best. She's not all that connected to the the world of photography. I pay a lot of attention to who who the interesting artists are and what's going on in, in photography. But Barbara is the best editor I've ever met. So I would finish a chapter and send it to her. And, and if she said, I don't really understand this about something, then I knew I had to work on it because she, she would absolutely nail it. She started out life making educational film strips. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember film strips, but that was the way that, that in, in grammar school, we would study stuff. They had a film strip projector and it would go through a roll of 35 millimeter film one frame at a time. Yes, with the little ding that says, move to the next slot. Yes, exactly. Was there. Yes. So, so Barbara was extremely logical and, and very precise about how you move from one concept to another and link them in a linear fashion. She's very, very good at that. So over the last 15 or 20 years, basically, I became the principal author and the, the publisher left all the names on the cover for continuity. They, they have a marketing department as typ typical marketing runs everybody else. So they, they wanted to make sure they didn't tip the apple cart by changing what was on the cover of the book. Well, but I mean, but has that become a, a sort of a double-edged sword, a bit of a burden being the person who wrote the book that like everybody uses in the classroom kind of thing? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of hoping there's not a downside to it, but I'm just wondering, has there been any potential downsides to being the guy who writes the, the instructional book? If there is, I, I'm anti-social media. I don't twerp. I don't do FaceTime or, or any of those things. And, and so I don't hear about, I mean, if you're, if you're on Twitter, you hear everybody's opinion about you. At least I understand that's the case from what I see on the news and, and hear otherwise. I mean, I don't do that. So I only communicate with people who communicate with me. I get email once in a while. So I'm not vulnerable to those people that just have a, an instant opinion and want to put it out there. I'm vulnerable to those people who use the book and have a and have a, a serious question or opinion about it, and and that comes back to me in the form of feedback. The the those opinions go to the publisher. We ask for opinions. I take them very seriously. They ask people who teach photography who use other people's books, and I find out why they're using someone else's books and not mine. So. I, I incorporate that every time there's a, a new edition, but I don't feel like I'm getting any abuse about it. And I do try to update every time there's a new edition. I try to make it better every time. If there's a downside to it, and you, you kind of asked about that, it's that it's a, a hell of a lot of work. It, it takes a good six months of almost full-time effort to corral a, a new edition. I do everything, basically. The 
everything except the last steps of production. So I take the previous edition. The, the books are laid out. I, I assume you noticed they're laid out in two-page spreads so that every pair of pages incorporates a new idea and it starts and finishes that idea. So if I want to change anything, it still has to fit. I can't run over onto the next page and start the next idea halfway through a page. So I'm very fussy and obsessive about, I work in InDesign. I take the previous edition, the, the production files, and I will shrink or enlarge a picture very slightly. I adjust things so that the, the columns end up even. I'm very possessed by not having, in the publishing world, it's uh, widows and orphans, where you have a single word at the end of a paragraph or, or a single line at the top of a, of a column. So I work those things out by using tracking and kerning. I'll, I'll spread the, the words apart a little tiny bit so you can't tell. And, and so I'm, I'm completely involved in the design and layout of, of every pair of pages in the book. And it's, it's a huge amount of work. So not only do I have to figure out what's happened since the last edition in contemporary photography and incorporate that and deal with, in order to get permission to get a photograph in the book, I have to deal with an artist or an estate, or a museum, or a, a stock agency, and sometimes it's complicated, and sometimes somebody just died two years ago, and the estate isn't settled, and so it's it's a it's very complicated. Even even the part that a normal author would have about here are the words and these are the pictures. So I do all the permissions and I do all the layout, and it's a lot of work. So you know I don't want to try to engage any sympathy, but I have a full-time teaching job. I have responsibilities to the students. I'm a practicing artist and I have a, a young family. I've got school-aged children too. And so something had to give. And for me, the one thing that, that I could more easily let go of was the sense of needing to put my pictures under everybody's nose. So I continue to make photographs. I have a, a website. I still take the medium seriously and I still exhibit when it comes up, but I've sort of fallen down in the world of self-promotion. So I just don't have the time in my schedule to make appointments with curators and sit down and talk about the work and try to put together, I, I don't do Instagram, try to get everybody to know my work and see what I ate for lunch today. You know, I've, I've sort of given up on trying to be in everybody's consciousness at every moment. And doing the revisions of the books was a, a, a real major factor in in that sense of kind of letting go of trying to be the famous artist. And that's sort of an interesting segue, which is the, the nature of like, in most cases these days, you know, even as an academic, so you have a full-time job that theoretically is giving you health benefits and a retirement fund and, and a full-time salary and all this. So there's kind of no need to be doing all these other things, but you still want to be doing all these other things. Like you still have that passion to make your own images. And of course you have the the love of creating the book, I, I assume, I'm you know, putting words in your mouth, but how, you know, how have you found sort of the contemporary art world sort of uh, you know as far as like because it i have this opinion so here I'll, I'll give you my little soapbox for the day i have this opinion that like the art world i feel like right now is very enamored with youth and social media and um sort of the 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 shining star kind of a br shining brightly kind of thing and i feel like there's less of a, a an appreciation and a support for the 
previous generations and and the older generations as much as like there was when when I was in school it was all about the admiring and respecting the the previous generations whereas I feel like there's a lot less of that now that's my soapbox well i I think it's natural i mean one one of the things I found very interesting like I said I have school age children I've got sixteen uh, year old twins and when they were in when they when they started getting books assigned to them in school, I, I I was wondering, do they need to read Gulliver's Travels? Do they do they need to read the the classics of the? They, do they need to read Moby Dick? Moby Dick, yeah, right. So, and what I realized is that uh, I mean I'm a, a fair amount older than my my children, obviously, and that there's been several decades of new writing. There's been several decades of new music. Do they do they need to know Mozart and and Chopin, and and do they need to know the Beatles, for example? And how do you cram all of that stuff into a, a single brain? Yes, they need to know the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would I would make a case for Bach and Beethoven myself, but okay, good, good. <laughs> but yes, and it's it, it's trouble. I remember. Uh, I got called back to teach at at RISD after I was a graduate student, several years after that, because one of the professors died, and I happened to match the skill set. So I I went back to teach in his place for a few years. And I remember meeting one of the graduate students who didn't know who Harry Callahan was. And and Harry Callahan was the, the basically the founder of the graduate program there, and one of the he was the first photographer to represent the United States in in the Venice Biennale. He was as famous as any photographers ever got, and this was a a blank spot in the in the head of a graduate student. I thought, boy, we got we got problems. So I think everybody has to start with nothing in their brain, and then and then gradually acquire it. So it's my responsibility for my students to get them to to see i mean i, I i'm interested i have 5000 photo books in in my living room and i know who did what and i know what's in them and it's you know don't be too impressed i i i, I specialize in books that have mostly pictures in them so it's way easier than having to read it's not that i'm impressed it's more that i'm envious yeah, I, I I was obsessed, and and I'm not the only one with a huge library because photo and books really go to go together. But I don't expect any 19 year olds to have that kind of library or to to one at a time go through it. So in my classes, you know, I talk about various issues. You know, as an example, I'll, I'll give my my students a an assignment about taking charge of what's what's in the picture. Alan Coleman called it the directorial mode. So all of those people that basically build something in front of the lens in order to make the photograph. And so I give an assignment like that. And then I show my students slides of Laurie Nix and, and Gregory Crudson, people who actually assemble stuff. Erwin Olaf. Yes, Erwin Olaf. He's in my slide group. So I'm able to show them 20 or 30 people. And I show them three or four pictures each. It takes 45 minutes or an hour of class time. And, and it pleases me when they write down those names. One of the great things about our program, we, we got started with a, a, a very early 
with an, an MFA program in photography. It was started in the 1960s, and there was only a half dozen places in the country at, at most where you could get an MFA then. And so the early people, Van Deren Koch and Beaumont Newhall and Thomas Barrow, they were very much aware of First of all, the importance of seeing real objects. So our, our museum has a ten or 11,000 print collection going back to the beginnings of the medium. And our library has had people telling them, buy this book, buy that book. So our students can go into the library and look at a, a huge set of the history of the medium, which means I don't have to loan my own books out. And, and I'm glad of that. I haven't lost any. So my students can write down a few names and they can go into the library or online because it's there too and begin to familiarize themselves with with the high points of the medium. I really don't expect anybody that's not my age to be able to come up with all of those names. And I'm kind of losing my ability to to do that myself. I, I remember the pictures. I remember everything about it except the name will come to me in 20 minutes or tomorrow. Or in the middle of the night. Exactly. But at least I'm getting my students started on getting a kind of overview. And eventually they will have that kind of grasp on who has done important work in the medium. And if we're lucky, they will incorporate all of that into their own work and make some strides to to better it all. Yeah, like I had the luxury of growing up in Washington, D.C. with the Smithsonian and all the other museums, the Corker and all these kinds of places. And and I also had the darn, the incredible luxury that one of the – my father's a priest, and so one of his – our parishioners was the head curator at the National Gallery East – and so as just a like a, a, a joke, she was like, oh, if your son ever wants to look at some artwork, just have him come by and ask for me. So I went running to the National Gallery and they they let this is something that like a lot of people in the public don't know museums like if you make an appointment with them they will literally let you go in the the back storage if they have it in storage and easily accessible and and let you like like sit there with a piece of art like intimately in a way that like you would never experience in an exhibition and and that sort of started me down the path of like oh my gosh, it's not just this, but because I was able to like lift up prints and look at the pencil marks on the back and all the little notes that they wrote and all this kind of stuff. And it was magnificent. And this is, this is something that like, even today, I don't take advantage of it as much as I probably should anymore. But like, it was such a great thing to be able to go beyond the surface sort of experience of just seeing it and actually seeing a little bit more of the process that went into it. And the, the as I said, like the notes that they had on them and stuff. And I loved that stuff. So like, I wish I, you know, I wish more people would be taking advantage of some of these great resources and opportunities that are available, like your li- amazing library and your amazing collections of stuff. So that's my two cents on that. On that note, just this last week, I took a class into the print room of our museum. I sent the curator an email in advance and said, how about bringing out some of these things? I mean, everything is is basically in storage if it's not on the walls of the museum itself. But with a little forewarning, they'll bring out 20 or 30 pieces and put them up so that my students can see the real objects. And they'll bend over backwards to accommodate students. They, they can, you can, if you're a student here or, or someone in the community, you can send them an email and say, I'd like to look at this or that. And they're very, very pleased to do so. We, like I said, we have a 10 or 11,000 print collection that goes back to the beginnings of the medium. The 19th century is very 
well represented in our collection. And when I was starting out, like you, I used to go, I was in Boston, I went down to New York and I would barge into the Museum of Modern Art and, and go into the door that said photography and say, hi, can I look at some Edward Weston prints? And they'd say, sure, kid, sit down. And they would bring out a box of Edward Weston platinum prints and put it in front of me and then leave me alone. And those prints are all worth half a million or a million dollars now. And one of the differences, I think, between us and them now is that the Museum of Modern Art probably has a backlog of people wanting to make use of the, of the print room, and their people are busy. So in order to get access, that kind of access, back when I started, nobody would, would knock on their door. And these days, I think you need to give them a little heads up. You need to, to make an appointment, maybe a, a week or two in advance. Maybe you tell them about the research you're doing or get a letter of recommendation. But we are a little, we're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're a little off the beaten path. And so our museum is just incredibly eager to get people in to use the resource that, that we have. So it's a, it's a huge advantage. Our graduate students, we get graduate students who don't feel like they're cheating themselves because they're not in the middle of Manhattan. If you're a graduate student in Manhattan, you can drop into all the galleries and, and say hi to the person sitting at the desk that has no influence. But you at least feel like you're in the middle of the art world. And for a lot of people, that's such an incredible distraction because there's art everywhere and you can't keep up. And our graduate students come here because they can get into the studio and they can concentrate on their work for, for three years. A lot of programs are two. And, and I think our graduate students appreciate that sort of middle year where they're not either trying to get adjusted or looking at the door and figuring out what to do next. They actually can, can burrow into their work and work incredibly hard on it. But that's one of the advantages of our program is that they're not horribly distracted. We get visitors in to feel, make them feel like they're connected. And we sometimes take them on field trips to L.A. or, or to New York to, to feel like, you know, there is way too much to see. But our print room, our, our museum, is one of the great benefits of, of that because it's not overwhelmed by that kind of pressure. I haven't tried to go into the Met or the Modern and look at their print collection recently, so I don't know if if they'll let you in just by knocking at the on the door but i'd guess it takes a little more than that but uh, like i like i said curators are and you said it actually the curators are eager to share their collection that's their job is to know the collection and hope that other people are interested absolutely so okay what what about teaching these days now i haven't been in the united states in 10 years now so like what's the sort of state of academia in general cuz like i hear bad stories i hear some positive stories back and forth it depends on who you talk to well first of all you, you ought to visit there's some stuff to see in the united states uh, i'll trade places with you for a little bit i'd i'd love to spend spend a while in prague not right now you wouldn't our covid numbers are like literally the highest of the entire pandemic as of today yeah and that for the last two years now uh, almost two years has really been the dominant story and it's really hard to to kind of talk in, in an informed way about what's happening in academia or what's happening in tourism or what's happening in, in anything else because it's all in flux and, and it's just changing from week to week. But the academic programs, I haven't heard that a lot of places are eliminating photography. A lot of our graduate students end up in teaching positions. It's We don't want people to come here 
to get a credential to teach. That's that's the wrong reason to to start a graduate program. We want them to come here to be better artists and to to kind of work with a posse that will give them feedback that'll help them become better artists. But we have a, a really good track record for people leaving here and getting into academic positions. And as a result of that, I write a lot of letters of recommendation. People apply for jobs and and I have to write and say how terrific they are or or, or to be straightforward about it, what I try to do is to illuminate something about them that's not obvious from the materials that they send in. That's a bit of a challenge. I could, there's no reason for me to tell somebody about their artwork because they're looking at their artwork. Why would I be presumptuous enough to tell somebody why their art's good? Has anybody ever written a bad letter of recommendation? Like I've been on hiring committees for these kinds of things and like, they're all going to say the same things like, oh yes, they're lovely. They work hard. Like, why do we even still do that? (laughs) The interesting letters, uh, I've been on a lot of committees. I'm on, uh, actually I'm just rotating off the, the committee that at our university weighs in on people getting tenure and promotion across the university. So we're looking at at the dossier of someone who is in electrical engineering or the law school or the library or nursing or philosophy and, and trying to figure out whether they are great professionals and deserve to be promoted. And every time I'm in a committee like that or a panel to award grants or anything like that, I ask myself, how the hell did I get here? Because the people who are doing the applying are really good at it, and I never was. So I think, how did I get to be a professor? How did I get get a grant every, every once in a while? How did I get hired? Because the people that are sending in these applications or or these grant proposals, they're really good at it. That's an aside. But But having done that for a while, one of the things that is an advantage is that you begin to read between the lines, that you you can see how enthusiastic somebody is or or whether they're they're writing a letter that is genuine and really shows something about that person that, that you're reading about or something that that is just copy and paste from the last time that someone that you don't you're not enthusiastic about asked you and i've had occasion to tell people no i think you should ask somebody else to write for you so generally the the people who write those letters are legitimately in favor of the person getting whatever it is they're asking for. But I'm also very frequently asked to write letters for multiple people for a single position. And and like <laughs> I said- same position. Yeah, the same position. I just sent out two, <laughs> two letters to a single college two days ago for, for different people. And like I said, my job is not to tell them who to hire, not to tell them what great art is, but to try to illuminate something about the character of these folks. Because- if you're on a hiring committee, you're looking for somebody who's who's going to come into an existing group and work well. And 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 committees are, are a real crapshoot. They're they're entirely unpredictable. Even if you're on the committee, you find it capricious. The decisions never go the way you you absolutely expect it. And so sometimes the committee's looking for the most interesting artist. Sometimes they're looking for somebody. As you you were saying earlier, there's somebody in a in a department that has a specific narrow field. I, I I know that because in in a math department, there's somebody who does topography, for example, and the and the PhD sitting next to them in their department doesn't have a clue what their research is about, which is why it's really important to get letters 
support letters from people in the field at other universities because there might be somebody in topography at another university that understands what our guy is doing because we don't. And so a lot of universities, if there's more than one photo teacher, maybe there's somebody who does non-silver and maybe there's somebody who does view camera. Maybe there's somebody who does manipulated work and someone else that does street photography. We don't do that. So our photo people, we all have our own art to make, but but none of us, thankfully, brings that into the classroom and tries to make little clones of ourselves. But a lot of places are that, and a lot of graduate students in in other fields, a lot of people in, in physics or astronomy or chemistry, they go to a graduate program because there's one person who does research that's, that is what you think you want to be doing. So our art department doesn't do that. Well, that's a conversation I've had with a lot of uh, artists and professors here in Europe, because in Europe, it, the whole sort of mentor-apprentice relationship and sort of like being in, in the lineage of your professors is still a very common practice. Because like when I actually went to, to, to a job interview here in Europe and on the application form, it actually asked whose studio I learned under. So like who was my mentor? Yes. As part of my job application. And I'm like, I'm American. We don't do it like that. <laughs> well, we, uh, we do in some ways. For example, uh, part of my art department, part of our art department is art history. And, and we have someone who's a, a terrific art historian who is a Renaissance scholar. And it's very hard to imagine that someone who is wrapped up in Renaissance art would be able to follow contemporary art to the degree that might be useful for somebody who's going to teach contemporary or modern, for example. And so a lot of our art historians are on the studio graduate students' committees, and they tend not to ask the Renaissance art historian as much as they ask the people, there's somebody who is a, a Latin American scholar who happens to have a really strong interest in contemporary Latin American art. So that's somebody they can go to. So in some fields, it makes some sense. And in the rest of our department, we have photo people and we've got printmakers. And so someone would apply in photography and that's as narrow as we take it. But there are four of us and we don't subspecialize any any further than that. But it is characteristic of, of most other fields because it makes sense in those fields. But going back to your question from a while ago about what's happening in academia is that there is a, a, a huge amount of stress on interdisciplinarity and an awful lot of job postings. Either the, the job title is somehow interdisciplinary artist or multimedia artist. So the schools are, it's, it's a bit of a buzzword. And I'm a little old fashioned in that I think it's my job to be disciplinary. It's my job to be narrow. It's my job to know about something really well and to be involved in it in great depth. It's the student's job to be interdisciplinary. So they need to talk to me and all of my colleagues and begin to integrate all of that in their own work. It's not my job to know about everything and everybody and teach the students how to do that. That's that's their their job. But but that's that's one change in academia to answer your question that I've noticed is that the universities are getting on the interdisciplinary bandwagon. I will say like I've had experiences within that and a lot of the times I find it's it's to the well, okay. Undergraduate versus graduate. I think there's a big difference in whether or not interdisciplinary, non-interdisciplinary is more beneficial. I feel like 
undergraduate benefits from interdisciplinary because they might be introduced to things as their sort of introductory level, their bachelor's degree uh, into the things that they might find some amazing combination of something. But once they get to graduate level, then it's probably better to be more individual disciplined. That's my position on that. Well, at the graduate level, I'm a big fan of our program. I think we do a, we do a really good job. Before I left Boston, and this, this is a while ago, so maybe everything's changed, but I went to graduate school at RISD, and RISD had a photography department. It still does, as far as I know. And so there's a chair of the photography department, and there's a building that's mostly photography, and there's a painting department and a chair. And so there's a little picket fence around it. And one of the reasons that I was able to be employed right after I gradu- graduated from from RISD with my MFA was that there's too much demand, or was anyway, then too much demand on their photo one classes. So they only had the faculty and the facilities to teach photo majors beginning photo. And the illustration department said, well, what about our people? So they hired, it was Henry Hornstein, a good friend of mine. Henry taught photography photo one in the illustration department. And I got hired by the architecture department and the industrial design department to teach photo classes in those departments because their students couldn't get into photo one in the photo department. So I thought that was a little problematic and and they tended not to have a lot of blending of of the, the fields. The museum school, the school of the Museum of Fine Arts where several of my friends taught, they took graduate students as artists. You didn't apply in photography or painting. You applied as a, as a graduate student in art. And the entire faculty would decide which graduate students were admitted. And the faculty needed to be charismatic because there, there was no obligation for the students. They didn't have grades. And the students ha- didn't have attendance. So nobody had to show up for your classes. And if nobody did, you weren't going to last very long. So you had to be a really charismatic person just in order to have people come and sit at you, your feet and listen to what you had to say. Our department, we accept photography graduate students separate from painting. So the four of us get together and decide. But when you're a graduate student here in your second or third semester, you form a committee of studies. And your chair needs to be a studio artist, but it doesn't need to be, for the photo people, it doesn't need to be a photo person. And the other two people don't need to be anything else. They can be faculty at other universities, other people in in the in the university, one person needs to be outside the department. So they have to get somebody from physics or American studies or, or women's studies or something. I usually encourage them to find somebody whose academic field is aligned with what their, what their work is about. Because, you know, we encourage our students to have their ideas lead the medium rather than the other way around. So whatever their ideas are, whichever direction they're going, they can find somebody who can make some comments on that or give them a reading list in in that field. But only one person needs to be studio art on that committee. It doesn't need to be a photo person. So as soon as you start that, you can slide over toward painting or electronic arts, or you can have three photo people. And a, and we offer a PhD in the history of photography, which is uh, unusual and, and fabulous. It was That program was set up by Beaumont Newhall. And we've always had a, a photo historian as part of that program. You can come here as a graduate student and have three committee members who are studio photo people and the photo historian and not pay any attention to painting, although we'll, we'll give you a lot of abuse for it. 
But you can also have a painter as your chair and a printmaker and electronic artist and, uh, and someone in, in chemistry. So we have this kind of sliding back and forth between what RISD did back then and what the museum school did back then. And so we can accommodate the individual. I think it's very important. Well, see, I recently had a conversation. I graduated from the San Francisco Art Institute with a new genre degree. And we found my background. So I have an undergraduate from University of Iowa in a BA in studio art with an emphasis in photography. And then I went and got a BFA in photography from the Corcoran School of Art. But then with my MFA, and what happened was, is I found that once I got out into the world to try and get a teaching job, that new genre degree, uh, I was not accepted into the photography teaching course. Like I never, I never got a single job so far being a photography professor, even though photography is my specialty. Like that's my field, but I always got hired as visual communications or multimedia or technology in the arts or any sort of combination of things, even though just because of that one final degree that says that I'm, I'm new genre or, you know, the equivalent of interdisciplinary. And so in many ways, I think it actually has hurt my potential uh, hiring opportunities. I'm not surprised. And it's that that's one of the things that has been changing about the hiring practices of universities. And you are benefited by this tendency toward interdisciplinary thinking because the way the, I mean, universities are, are, are huge wheels and they turn slowly. So, no. so the, the way that the job description is, is written has a lot to do with what is accepted as a set of applicants. And so it used to be that if they had a, a position in painting, they would look for people with a degree in painting. And a position in photo, they'd look for people with a degree in, in photo, whether you could do it or not. And you could apply and, and plead in your cover letter that you're really qualified and try to prove it. But it's, you're starting off with one black mark against you. And, and that's much less so now because, and, and back then, you know, 10 or, or 20 years ago, the departments were very slowly starting to change. And they were realizing that they were you know, on the wrong side of the curve by not having anybody that could really deal with electronic art or art that existed online. And so all of a sudden they said, well, we really need somebody to address that. How do we phrase that? What, what are we looking for? And so suddenly they're posting positions that someone with a degree that says new genres could apply for and they wouldn't put you in the other pile. But it's, that's only been fairly recent, and the degrees are kind of all over the map in terms of what the degree says you studied. But most of the time, the positions that are, that are open that you would thrive in, they're, they're listed very differently from one another, and it's just up to you to say what's listed that way, because probably if you applied for a job that said professor of painting, they wouldn't be interested in you. But new media or new genres or maybe even electronic art or digital art, that nobody's figured out what to call it so that it, that becomes easy. I do wish there was a consistent vernacular for this across the board, which of course there's not. But I also wanted to mention, and, and, and I hope I, I don't put you on the spot with this, but to be honest, I actually applied to your MFA program and you all did not accept me. And they, all, also, they all didn't accept you. I wasn't here then. <laughs> I don't know if you were there. I actually, I'm pretty sure you were there. When did you start there? 90, 1998. 
you were there. Yeah. It wasn't me. <laughs> it's okay. I don't take offense to it. I was an arrogant little shit back at the time and, and my work was not amazing. I totally understand why people did not accept me. But anyways, but I, I applied not only for the MFA program, I have also applied to teach at New Mexico and bo- and I got turned down for that also. It's very well, depressing. I, 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 I can't make you feel any better about that, but I can tell you that when you applied, we were probably getting 100 applicants for oh, maybe four I'm or sure. five places. And like I said, I still can't figure out how I got here because I don't know how to do this stuff very well. But one thing I have realized is that when I've been a juror for, for grants where you're giving away five or 10 awards of money and you get four or 500 applicants for it. And, and what I've noticed is that it's really easy to cut the the four or 500 people down to 40 or 50. It's incredibly easy to see what the top 10% is. And then to get that down to four or five, to get it down to the 1% or 2%, that's a total crapshoot. And so, you know, I used to think that I would have to apply for a hundred things to get anything. Now I realize that it's probably, if you're any good at anything, it's probably closer to 10 or 15 because you'll probably get in the top 10%. But after that, no one can predict it. It's a completely capricious process. And you shouldn't tell yourself that that you're any lesser for not having gotten any of these things, because who knows what happened? Oh, no, I went on and I got other jobs I was perfectly happy with. But it's sort of funny that that I both I applied both as a as an MFA student and as a, a faculty to you all, and I've gotten turned down for both. I'm like, I guess I just don't fit in New Mexico. That's fine. <laughs> Or you you didn't fit at that time in that group. Like I was I was saying earlier about faculty hires. What you don't know is that the committee knows who the colleagues are. When we look at graduate student applications, we know who your colleagues are going to be. We've got two years worth of graduate students who are going to be your posse. And so we have to try to figure how you're going to fit into that. Are we having too many people whose work looks like this or too many people whose, whose very strong ideas are like that? So what, what's the mix going to be like? And that's you never can see that from the outside. Uh, the one that drives me nuts, though, is I recently did this for a visiting artist program uh, thing. Was the, a school wanted a, a visiting artist for a year, and and I applied, and I'm and I realized as soon as I applied, I was like, God damn it, they already knew who they were going to hire for this job before they even put the call out. But of course, as with state-run schools, legally they had to publicly do the whole thing and go through the whole rigmarole. And they just sort of wasted my time that I had to apply, even though they already knew who they were going to hire. And I'm just like, ugh. I have to say, just in our own defense, I have never seen that happen here. And we are, at least in photo, we are painfully aware of, and this is a, another long conversation, we're painfully aware of the remarkable class system that, is, that exists in most universities between full-time faculty and adjuncts. So in photo, we have a policy of never having anybody teach more than two or three classes as an adjunct for us. So usually we will give those, if we have a, a class that's loose, we will give it to somebody that was an ex-graduate student who's still in the community to get them a, a full-time or a, a, an after-MFA line on their CV to help them get the hell out of here. But we we do not have anybody who's been teaching here for, for eight or 10 years who starts to feel like they really ought to be in on the decisions and, and that the university owes them something. I was in that world in Boston for a long time, and I understand it completely. So we don't do that, and we have never... In, in any of the committees that I've been on, 
had an internal candidate. But like like you suggest, it's rampant and you can never tell. I know. I, it, the whole hiring process. I mean, I remember the last time I went through the whole hiring process and I, I think I sent out like 42 applications and only got like two interviews. And it's it's such a crapshoot. Like you just never know because you don't know what they really wanted versus what they wrote. Because sometimes the things that were like publicly put out were written by the HR department, not actually written by the department doing the hiring. You never know. And like one time, I'll tell you here, here's a horrible story. Right after graduate program, so this would be 2002, 2003, I was, I was interviewed by a school in, um, I'm not going to say this, where the school was because it's a horrible story, but I, I went down to the school and the, they flew me all the way down there. I was one of the top two choices and went through the whole, you know, touring around, meeting everybody, the whole thing, went to a barbecue, all this. And the, the dean of the department turns to me, he goes, I love you and I wish we could hire you. But unfortunately, we have to hire a woman. It's illegal to say that, but having been on the other side of that, when when I look at a department that is 90% white males, I think there's a little bit of a problem here in the role model department. And that has been a little tough the last few years. It's been a, lo- a little tough on on us white males. And it's really hard to to talk about it. But I understand where it's coming from. And I understand that that it needs to be addressed. And uh, and life ain't fair. I was never upset with them. Yeah, no, it was, it was, was never unfortunate upset. of the guy guy to tell you that. I think. You know, in hindsight, I I, I thought it was a great, a great life experience to have that happen. So, like, I, I I don't hold anything against him for it, and I don't hold it. And it's just sort of it's it, at that time it was the way of the world, and at that time he could legally say that. But of course, now you couldn't legally say that. But you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 kind of surprised that he was ever legally allowed to say that. <laughs> I, I guess I have I have two two friends that that have said something significant to me. One is Bart Parker, who was a fabulous artist and passed away a few years ago. Used the phrase "when I stopped exhibiting," because he just he found that it was so expensive. He had to basically mat and frame all of his work and ship it somewhere. And there wasn't the the sales potential that, that would give any kind of return on it. So he just said, the hell with this, I'm not going to do it anymore. And one of our ex-graduate students, Ian Van Collar, who had a, a marvelous career going as an exhibiting artist when he was a graduate student, he was, he was getting museum shows. I had him a- as a Zoom guest on one of my online classes when I was stuck at home last semester. And he said that he found exhibiting art to be, his word was, unsustainable. And, and that's a, a, a topic that, that we talk about with our, with our graduate students, that if you are fortunate enough to have somebody decide that they would like to have your work on the walls, if you get a real show in a real gallery, it, it seems to be kind of epidemic now that it's your responsibility to mat and frame and ship everything and ensure everything. And you can basically, if, if you're lucky enough to sell a couple of pieces, maybe you only lose a couple thousand dollars on, on, on an exhibition. So it, it's really hard to be too enthusiastic about that way of exhibiting art. And like I said, I'm, I'm anti-social media, so I don't make work for Instagram the way a, a lot of people do. And I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be happy about having my pictures seen on a little two-by-two screen. I want, uh, there, there's a, a connection that that I have and a lot of other people do to 
a physical object. My colleague, Meg Gould, who's a, a wonderful colleague, teaches classes that are focused around materiality. That's that's her phrase. So the, the, the materiality of, of artwork is significant. That's why our museum has a great print collection is because the people who taught here and, and founded the program thought that graduate students needed to confront the objects that the artists were actually making and see it the way the artists actually saw it instead of back illuminated and small and, and fleeting on a little tiny screen. Well, and possibly with poor color calibration and all other kinds of stupid things that, that come with the transition from a real piece to a virtual piece. Yes, I do. Every once in a while, one of my pieces pops up. I, I Early on, I ended up with a lot of photographs in museum collections. And once in a while, the, the curators will put up an exhibition that includes a piece. So I hear about it and it goes on the wall. But I've I'm I'm really not too enthusiastic about seeking solo exhibitions just because I know that it's incredibly expensive and and not particularly as Ian said sustainable. It's a difficult balance these days because like I've got lots of friends who are painters and all other kinds of mediums and to a certain extent theirs is kind of easy to do an exhibition because it's already structured in a way they literally just need a nail on the wall and they can just put it up they don't have to frame it or mat it or doing this and buy glass and all these kind of jazz and it's kind of reasonably affordable for them I mean they put the money into the paint and the canvas and all that but but photographers we have to or there's some obligation to sort of complete the image like make it presentable in whatever way whether that's matting and framing or you know uh, glued down to aluminum or whatever like whatever technique we do and it is a, a horrible like financial burden on us to present our works that i've always resented i mean Early on in my career, what I figured out was I said, fuck, fuck it, I'm not doing all this kind of stuff. So I actually learned woodworking. And so I build my own frames and they cost me a fraction of the cost. And I get to do them, you know, exactly the way I want them, the right, you know, thickness and depth and colors and all this kind of stuff. But even still, it's still a lot of time and energy and all that to, to put on an exhibition with no guarantee of return. Yes. And what you're talking about is functioning as a regional artist, which works pretty well if you live in an art capital. But when I lived in Boston, I knew sculptors who would rent a loft in New York. They would rent a truck. They would hire a, a crew to put all their stuff in the truck, drive it down to New York, install it in the loft, and then go around and tug on everybody's sleeve saying, will you come take a look at my work? And that's Boston, which is a pretty big city and has a, an, an art market, it's just they all felt like they were stuck in a, in a corner of the art world if they didn't have their work in, in a New York gallery. And Albuquerque is a way smaller pond than, than Prague, certainly. And the idea of establishing a local reputation here, it's actually pretty easy. We, the real estate is relatively cheap here. And we have a whole environment of, hey, let's put on a show, somebody that will find an, an empty loft space somewhere and make it a gallery for a few months or a couple of years. Santa Fe, which is an hour away, is a completely professional art scene where they sell an awful lot of art, not a huge amount of great art. It, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, a lot of cowboy bronzes and a lot of Native American jewelry, but they do sell a lot of art and they do have a lot of galleries. So there's a, an art consciousness there. But Albuquerque isn't that kind of place. And anything outside the state, any place that you might exhibit, 
and is at least 400 miles away. My colleague, Patrick Manning, had a show last year in, in Chicago, and he I think he owns a van just to do stuff like this. He put all his work in the van and drove to Chicago and installed the show and drove back and taught for three or four weeks and then drove back to Chicago to pick it all up again. That's that's basically what you have to do if you want to have exposure outside of your local community. You either have to pay for shipping, which is a, a, a phenomenal expense. Plus, you've got to build crates, so you need to be a little crafty about it. I, I feel sorry for anybody that doesn't have your woodworking skills, not just the frames, but building something that will hold the stuff and not get it broken in transit. Yes, I could build a lovely crate as well. Yes. Somebody should do an exhibition of art crates. Uh, maybe it's already happened. I remember back back in the must have been in the in the 1980s. Carl Baden, who was uh, he's a, a excellent Boston artist, was the curator at a little art space in in Cambridge, and he did what if I remember the the title correctly, International Artists Resume Exhibition, and he got resumes from from all the artists and put them up on the walls. There wasn't any any work; it was just resumes because he felt like. You know, this is the way we represent ourselves. We have to do this. We spend more time putting together the resume than we do making a new piece of art. So I thought that was a brilliant exhibition. Maybe crates. Oh, yeah. That's one of my pet peeves. Yeah. Oh, I love containers and like how, like, because like I've been talking to like glass artists and all these kind of, and like, and, and preparators at museums. And like, I'm fascinated by the way that things are secured. And like, I would love to see an exhibition of like the, the, the storage crates for art, but not the art. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that's sort of right, right into uh, Louise Lawler's territory. Yeah. There you go. All right. A uh, last little thing would be because you are the guy who writes the book on photography, and you are a what, what's your full title? The uh, no, you have a really lovely title now. It at school. Yes, a distinguished professor. That's it, distinguished professor of that's, photography. That's the last. That's the last thing before they nail the coffin shut. Is that I'm so is that equivalent to like at other universities where they say like professor emeritus? Is that no emer same? emeritus? Emeritus means you've retired. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, good. Okay, depending on the university, you may have to apply for it. In in our case, after you retire, you have to get the department to vote that you are, become professor emeritus, and I think it lets you keep your email address or something like that. There's. Or you, you know, for some people, you're allowed to keep an office, or you're allowed to keep your your mail going there, or something. There's some some advantages to it, but not much. But most universities have something like regents professor or distinguished professor that that is a sign of somewhat more accomplishment than full professor, which is the end of the line for for the teaching track. What? But okay. But do you have tenure at least? At a university, you start as an assistant professor, typically, and assistant professor does not grant you tenure. And at most universities, I, I'm speaking from a research university, which is sort of the higher end of, of obeying the rules for stuff like that. But normally, you're hired as an assistant professor. During your sixth year, you apply for promotion and tenure. That's the committee I was on is deciding about those things. And if you are granted tenure, that's a separate decision. You are usually promoted to associate professor. And I 
think at our university, you can be an associate professor without tenure. And I separated them just because I started when I was older. But normally, if you start right out of graduate school, you have your fresh PhD, you're an assistant professor without tenure, and then you're an associate professor with tenure. And tenure means that that you can only be fired for cause, which means either you're fucking a student or the school has decided not to continue to teach your field. So if they if they closed our art department, I would lose my job. But otherwise, it, it's it's a way of protecting academic freedom. So you can say what you want in your in your classes. You can teach the the theory you you feel like. And and then after a associate professor, you can apply for full professor, which is usually a a mark of being distinguished in your field, being having published maybe your second or third book, or having published a, a, a lot more uh, of your research in, in peer-reviewed journals. So there are some, some qualifications, depending on the university, of how, how you would qualify for that. And that's the final rank, except for this, this sort of sideline of being a regent's professor or a distinguished professor or honored professor or something. They, there's, there's one more thing that, that, depending on the university, they might give you without, again, any particular benefit, except they have to print new business cards for you. Fair enough. So, but my my interest was then, like, from your experiences and, and sort of still being in the classroom even these days, any sort of advice? So, like, if somebody's coming out of grad school now, or even if somebody's a mid-career artist, like, what's something that maybe I guess we're not paying enough attention to that you feel like is maybe something that people should be paying a bit more attention to or some sort of practice that, that uh, we're not doing enough of that you think is still important? As as we've mentioned, I live in a couple of worlds, and one of them is the academic world. And we allow our graduate students to teach. They get an assistantship, and it throws them into a classroom, not immediately. We don't give anybody a, an assistantship in the first semester, we make them kind of as an understudy. We call it shadowing. So you'd shadow somebody, another graduate student in their class so that you're not taking responsibility for undergraduate education with no experience. But after a couple of semesters of, of being instructor of record in one of these beginning photo classes, some people like it and they think that they would like to do that. So I counsel a lot of our graduate students about how to get involved in the academic world, how to make yourself useful, basically. And that's a, a, a key word because when we have an academic job, like, like the one that you applied for and didn't get, just to rub it in. Thank you. When I read 150 or 200 resumes for the one position that, that we're, we're offering, I see an awful lot of people who are sort of interchangeable. They, they have a graduate degree, they have a bunch of exhibitions, and they can talk about art. What's missing about that is anything else that might be useful to the students. So I encourage our graduate students, if they really want to get involved in education, do something that would make you useful to the students that would prepare the students for a life that's not either making art and being supported by your foundation, by your parents, or getting an academic job. So we talk a lot about trying to sell your art, getting involved in a gallery, doing something that's not directly related to that, like go teach in a prison or start a nonprofit or start a, a poster business where you're you're selling work by other artists. Try to do something that you can talk to students about and say, there is something other than 
this great Ponzi scheme, this pyramid scheme where, where, you know, we're at the top of the pyramid and everybody below us is trying to scramble up to do what we're doing. And there isn't very much room up there. So what can you do to expand on the possibilities for an artist in the world? And I try to get our graduate students started thinking about those things because almost everybody that gets out of graduate school, particularly now, they've got a long list of these juried online exhibitions where you pay 40 bucks and someone looks at your five slides and they put it online for a month and you can write that on your resume. And that's, that's really not a form of success and it's not something that you can really benefit your students later with, even if you do get a, get a teaching job. So what is it that you can do other than talk about art and talk about the history of art and talk about other artists, make some of your own and get it online somewhere? Well, I mean, it's funny. I was recently talking to somebody else that I, I went to my MFA program with, and we were talking about how like the intention of what you want to do when you go to an MFA program and how that can change the outcome of sort of like even the direction of, of a career. Because when I went, and, and fully I'm going to stay up front, I made the mistake of when I went to graduate school, I went there with the in full intention of just getting a diploma so that I was accredited to be able to teach. Like That's what I wanted. And I didn't make friends. I didn't build a network. I didn't keep in touch with my teachers. I didn't uh, keep in touch with even my, my colleagues uh, in the program. And that's one of those things that like, I think is a, a huge mistake that I made in my career. And it's something that I, you know, I wish was almost maybe sort of told to us all the like early on, like you should, you, the people you go to your graduate school and you even mentioned it with your students that it's that posse of people that they're going to be your support network, your critique group, probably for the rest of your life that you're going to be associated with and all this. And I made the mistake of not doing that. And I, I'm not going to say I regret it, but it obviously is something that in hindsight, I, I wish I had done differently. It's important. I, I mean, I, I've failed to mention so far, and I, I, I kind of feel sorry for anybody that's hung on this long listening to us, but, but one of the most important things about graduate school and about studying art and about being an artist is that you need to find a place in yourself for your, for your work. You need to, if you have a fire burning in yourself to, to make work, you need to keep that up whether it supports you or not. And at some point or another, you're going to have to figure out how to keep that fire burning while you go and engage in all the other things that life throws at you. That when you get out of school, maybe you've got a partner, maybe you've got a family, maybe you've got a job, maybe you want to spend Saturday night with your feet up watching a, a, a football game. How do you keep your art world alive inside you while all that stuff is going on? And one of the things that helps with that it's not absolutely necessary, but one of the things that helps with that is to have a posse that every once in a while you get together with your friends and you say, here's what I've been doing. What are you up to? And that's what graduate school provides for you. And when you get out of that cocoon, when you graduate, you've got to make that happen for yourself somehow. You've got to have other people to talk to about it, or you're going to be a very unusual kind of artist who is self-satisfied making the work, not showing it, not talking to anybody about it, but continuing to do it. And that's, that's great too. But the most important thing, if you're an artist, is you got to continue to be an artist. And whether you have a teaching job or whether you get gallery shows, whether it supports you or whether you're just asking everybody you see, would you like fries with that? Somehow having that art inside you 
and getting out is the most important facet. And I think that's a lovely way to end this. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. It was great to, to reconnect. And like I said, I, I hope that, that there's maybe one person out there that wants to spend an hour with, with us. It was fun to spend an hour with you. Thank you very much for listening to The Complete Conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. As we all know, funding and financial support for the arts is incredibly important. So when you have it, you got to thank it. So I'd like to thank EEA Grants from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway. They are working together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. And I'd also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Czech Republic and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.